setting up shop. Hello and welcome again to Setting Up Shop, the Maker Journey podcast where we talk about taking your hobby through to professional business. My name's Dan and I'm a wood turner. And with me are Heidi and Rasmus. And for whatever reason, I always say his name like that, but that's going to become a staple of this. This is fine. So Heidi is a potter and Rasmus is a blacksmith. And between the three of us, we've got a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of experiences where we can hopefully help you out and uh, help you not to make some of the same mistakes we did, um, but also to uh, inspire you to do things in a variety of different ways to move forward. If you were listening from last week, um, we set an assignment at the end of the episode and the assignment was to go and print out a um, timeline for a week and write down all of the free time you thought you might had, any things you might be able to sacrifice so that you can give yourself a bit more time, but also factor in things like you've got to, you've still got to sleep sometimes, you've got to eat, you've got to remember to do all those normal day-to-day things. So hopefully you'll have that in front of you or in the back of your mind when you to listen to this episode. Because today we're going to talk about what is your USP, your unique selling point? What is it that will make people come to you rather than going to someone else? So to start and kick off with that, we want to talk about the fact that you don't really want to be too general. You want to be really obvious what it is you are selling. And that can be from your name right the way through to the way you present yourself at the marketplace. Um, And so to start with, we're going to talk to Rasmus a little bit about that. And we're going to ask about uh, how he makes it obvious to people what it is he makes and what he sells. And if that varies from market to market as well. So Rasmus, what do you think? Not entirely sure where to begin. There, there was, I noticed one point like sort of true, possibly along the last five years or something of being a blacksmith, that the conversation when people asked, what do I do? And I answered, you're a blacksmith. It changed from being, oh, really? To people just looking at me and saying, yes, that makes sense. <laughs> Not sure what that means, but somewhere along the line, I more or less turn into the caricature of what a blacksmith is. So when I show up places, nobody is surprised of what I bring, so to speak. Okay. Does does that help? (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I I was also thinking about the fact that what you make, obviously, it does include knives. It does include various blades and things like that. A lot of bottle openers. Mm. But you've also gone to a few markets which have been more garden orientated. Yes. Um, And so you have kind of skewed some of what you're producing and and selling to meet that demand. Yeah, I sort of accidentally ended up really enjoying and making a lot of roses and heart hooks, which is also very contrasting to like the, the stereotypical blacksmith that you have in your mind of like big, barely bushy, rough around the edges and all of that. Not sure about how many of those actually of those criteria I fulfill, but yes, that's a thing people think. And I really enjoy making roses because that's nice and they, they it goes quick and it earns me money. Then going to a couple of garden markets is like having these old ladies coming up to me and saying like, like I have this massive rose bush or something silly. I need something to support it. I need something that, something here. And suddenly having literally great thumbs coming into a community full of green thumbs and having to understand what do they want, how do they work, and pivot into that and realizing this is easy for me to do, but it's not something I would have realized on my own. Okay, so that's uh, that's feeding into something we're going to talk about a little bit later then really, isn't it? It's talking about the kind of almost the market research element of it and your customer base. Yeah. 
Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> no, 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 not a problem at all. I, I, I led the question, so uh, it's absolutely fine. Going back to then to this, the USP, the unique selling the roses point. are definitely something that if I was to say blacksmith to someone, or if I was to say, what do you think a blacksmith makes? And we'll, we'll steer aside the usual misconceptions of a farrier. The, the fact that you, you produce these roses, which aren't unique to you necessarily, is, you know, you've, you've not come up with a design, but actually being a blacksmith who makes them in multiples and has them for sale, as well as what the expected things to be. I think, would you say that sets you aside apart? I mean, I, I certainly think it does, but um, I'm, I've not gone and looked at lots of blacksmiths when they're selling at markets. Yeah, it absolutely does. And for me, it, I, I joke and say it was accidental. It was, it's accidental how well it's been selling for me. But it was on purpose something I wanted to do because when I showed up to markets, I had a lot of interest from other men who came and wanted to see the knives, the axes, all the rough other things. But realizing that I'm missing out on 50% of the demographic that comes up to the shop, having something yeah. for them would be really nice. So that's where the roses specifically came from to try to get some interest to someone I weren't selling to at all. Okay, that's very interesting. So, okay, we'll, we'll leave that there with yourself a little bit and we'll, we'll move on to Heidi um, and change the question slightly. So when you first started selling your pottery, Heidi, did you start with the same sort of range as you're selling now or did it become more... Well, ignoring designs and glazes let's just talk about the individual types of vessel did you have a broad range to start with or did you focus on a particular thing like you tend to now well i i want to say that like it was all clear um, <laughs> but really the the biggest focus was um the mugs and making them specific to a shop that i was selling at and they were looking for something that was pittsburgh themed Okay. Um, I had developed a, a few things with that in mind, and then they came back and they were like, "We want that." <laughs> so it was it was pretty organic with how it worked out. I definitely didn't run into it in the mind of I want to make this one thing, and that's all I want to make. Yeah. Um, but I did have a thought in my head of how do I make one product that I can customize for multiple clients? So maybe the the shape of the vessel is similar or, and then it just has like icons or it has a logo or something on it to like differentiate between yeah. customers and bring something that maybe people weren't used to seeing with pottery. There's a lot of potters that just like throw a vessel and that's it. Like they come up with the glaze and then, yeah. you know, it takes off from yeah. there. For me, I immediately had a mindset of I want to sell to small businesses I want to be part of their story. So that made it a little bit easier. That's that's pretty cool. So you've already looked around at what other people are doing. And I, I've certainly noticed not in, a lot in my area. If you see a ceramicist, it tends to, everything seems to be like, right, this is the blue glaze phase for a couple of months and then it will become like a sea green or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and that that is their change is just one color or maybe they experiment with two, but it's not... I haven't seen anyone else doing the whole logo thing and the amount of work that you put into it and the utilization of your, your other techniques and what you've got available to you. But both of you have said interesting things there in that, Raz, you're, you've, you've created almost your USP as a blacksmith because you wanted to broaden the market. You didn't want it to just be 
oh, guys will come and look at my stand because it's knives and axes and, and all of that kind of stuff. And some women would come and look at that as well, but not as many. Or maybe the guy would want to come and see my stuff and his wife would be with him and she'd be like, no, you, you've seen enough of that. You've got enough of that. Yeah. But you've you've broadened the range of what it is you're selling that appeals to a wider market, which means more people are coming to your stand. And that's then led to people asking you to make other things. And then Heidi, you've you've kind of got your everyday object everyone wants a mug even if they don't drink tea or coffee i want a mug i i rarely have like a hot chocolate in the winter time or something like that but i want my special mug that has got that i know is mine and it always tastes better out of that mug um so the fact that you've you've identified what the vessel is that you're going to be making most of or your staple and they can vary in how much they can carry and the, the shape and the form and the handle and all that kind of stuff but What's making it unique to you is the fact that you can customize it to a small business or if someone wanted a, a one-off special or something like that for a, a commemorate a birthday or a retirement or something like that. So I think that's I think those are both quite interesting ways to look at things. And if people haven't considered what makes them stand out and what makes them unique, I mean, in, in my instance, you know, I'm a wood turner. There's a lot of retired old guys who are making bowls or making pens they're all out of wood that is not necessarily very changeable in color. And, you know, even then there's a lot of people who have gone down the route of playing with texture or playing with color and all that kind of thing. May I just interrupt there a little bit? Yeah, go on. Because here in Norway, I was told at the last National Blacksmithing Meetup that I'm the only blacksmith in Norway that make, makes money doing what I do. That's interesting. Uh, we, yeah, it surprised me as well. There's a lot of other hobbyists that go to markets and sell things but I'm the only one that actually has it as a full-time job and a major pillar of my business. Okay. But when it comes to the whole wood turning community, and I don't know how this stands for uh, potters and ceramists, but that seems to be something that a lot more people do and pick up. Yeah. Not sure about how like the full-time aspect, if there's anyone who you know that does that and goes to market, but... So there, there are a couple of different... Um, as, as with any discipline... There are always subdivisions within it. Yeah. Um, so the guys who are full-time professionals tend to be what they would call a spindle turner. So most of them don't go to a market. They do commission work. And it can be anything from make 10 candlesticks that look identical that then go into a shop. It can be turning really large table bases on quite a large lathe. Mm. It can be replacement stairway spindles in small batches for companies, all, all sorts of different stuff. There's been quite a rise in demand recently for pocket watch stands because oh. people are collecting pocket watches again, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's fun. And yeah, so you, you get to play around with design a little bit. Mm. But the guys who do that professionally, they're not going to markets. You know, they, They're either third or fourth generation or they did an apprenticeship or whatever. Uh, I think the youngest guy doing that at the moment in, is in his late 40s, early 50s. Right. He started playing around with a lathe at his at his dad's shop when he was 14, and his dad was a he made um, wooden window frames, so he had access to this kind of stuff from a young age. But then there are also the other guys who do it who are they have made a name for themselves through artistic wood turning, hmm. and they've done it alongside a full time job, and then they have merged across to being a full-time woodturner. There's a guy called uh, Gary Rance, who this week released his... Uh, once a month, he turns for a week, and all he makes is apples and pears in exotic hardwoods. And he has got himself quick enough 
that he can make a profit off them quite reasonable, even when you average out the price of them being charged at £17.50 for an apple. Oh. Okay, so he, he turns fast, but he turns in batches, and it will take he will take him two days, and he will do 50 of these, and they'll all be really nice. They'll be highly polished. They'll be beautifully made in a, in a variety of exotic hardwoods. Mm. Um, and then that's that's like he takes like a week off after that of just doing nothing. And then he spends two weeks doing commissions. So we, we've got a, a few things like that. Um, but that's that's the broader scale. The majority, as you say, like the majority of wood turners are kind of particularly at craft markets, tend to be guys who are doing it as a hobby or they're retired and they just want to pay for the hobby. Yeah, And that's where you don't necessarily have the unique selling point. They're not worried about that. They're just trying to pay for what they're buying. And, and that's where it can undermine the market a little bit because I, I've, I deliberately choose to go to markets that aren't the cheap and cheerful £5 a table in a village hall. Yeah because the chances of me selling my stuff at the price that I want to charge for it is quite remote. And the chances of there being another guy there who I've probably sold wood to in my day job mm. and is then selling a bowl for like £15 and I sold him the bowl blank for 10 And I know that he's, you know, he's not there to make money. He's just, he's literally just paying for the hobby. He's just trying to keep his wife happy by not spending his retirement fund on on all this kind of stuff. There's a big difference there, I think, between... Yeah. Not not only like the hobbyists... But also, like, what do you bring yeah. to this market to distinguish yourself? Because uh, if you were just selling the same as the old retirees that just wanted a self-fulfilling hobby, yeah. you wouldn't stand out. You wouldn't remember them anymore. No, absolutely. And I think the other thing is, is what, I, what I've done to try and stand out is rather than have lots of one-offs that are all championing the individual piece of wood, I try to have... So, for instance, I'll try and make a set of plates... So I might turn a batch all at the same time of, say, 10 or 15 or so plates, all of the same size from the same species of wood, um, but they will all have the same rim thickness, the same depth, the same sort of hollow out to the middle so that people could buy one or a pair of them if they wanted to, or they could buy a set of six, and they will all match within a tolerance that they will be different the, the the skill that I'm trying to develop is from that the only way you would tell they're different is if you really meticulously measure them. Like you should be able to hold two up next to each other and not see with the naked eye that there is anything different about them. Yeah. Um. So that that's kind of part of my USP. The fact that I'm I'm making kitchenware and tableware, so it's not anything outside of that remit. A lot of it I try to have historically inspired or at least. You know, I'm I'm not creating something new that no one's ever used before, you know, but at the same time, I'm not going to make pieces that haven't been used for centuries because people no longer use them. Mm. So, for instance, I would love to have a go at some point at making a lemon juicer. Oh. They used to, like, turn those and then carve the little sections out of them where, yeah. you know, the little thing you shove into the lemon and get the juice out. When was the last time you saw someone use a lemon juicer? Uh, probably in a pub. Yeah. Way too posh pub. <laughs> yeah, precisely. So it's not something I'm necessarily going to have on my website or on my craft stand, but it might be something that I make to challenge my own skill set and to try and improve things. But it, it would fit within the remit yeah. of it's, you know, it's, it's um, food related, it's made of wood, it's on the lathe. It's something that is historically, you know, there are evidence for it and I can play with. And it would fit all of the USP, 
but it's not something that people are going to go oh yeah i'll buy one of those and then they see that the price is like 25 pounds and they can pick one up for one pound 50 in a supermarket that's also made of wood unless they they really like you know unless they buy one of everything for my brand and they're a collector or i've done something really special to it it's unlikely to sell so there's having a usp but there's also trying to to understand that it needs to fit within the realms of of reality Mm. you know don't get me wrong i might be very fortunate and get to a point where i can make a 25 pound lemon juicer and, and someone will buy it and they'll sell really well because they want to have my my product uh so talking about the you know it's also kind of going into which markets you pick and choose what size your range is and all of that kind of thing um one of the things that i did that was bad and i'm sure everyone's already tired of talking hearing me talk about it so we'll move on to heidi in just a second i got very excited when i came up with my concept and what i was going to be doing and so i went ahead and went all right well there's these 10 different products i'm going to do and i made prototypes of all of them and rather than going right here's what's good and what's bad about this one I just went that's fine and moved on to the next one um so i very quickly ended up with a range that all of which were okay and none of them were really up to the standard of what i wanted so it's i mean i'm still thinking like only 10 different items that's that's not a lot <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not a lot but it's you know you've, you've got to think about um it, it's not so this is the thing with for me with a product you can't just think of I'm making a product. So for instance, right, I'll, I'll, I'll say a rolling pin, which is one of the ones I haven't made yet. Okay. There are at least three different styles of rolling pin. So which one do you make? Yeah. What length do you want it? What's what's the purpose? What's it going to be for? Is it for pastry? Is it for pasta? Is it for, you know, all of these different things. And all of a sudden you, you find yourself delving down a rabbit hole of just one product or you can just go, I'm going to turn a cylinder and round the ends off and that's a rolling pin. But you've not thought about what's it for. Who's going to use it? Look at the market around me. How much do they normally sell for? Why, what am I going to sell it for? How do I justify it being more expensive, which it's bound to be? And all that kind of stuff. How do I package it? If I'm going to ship this, have I got packaging for this what what am i going to sell it as am i going to name it mm. you know not bob the rolling pin but are you <laughs> going to give it like an artistic sounding name and all all of these kind of factors that when you're excited and you're in the workshop you don't necessarily consider but they all lead into what the final shape should end up being but so really the the comment is i suppose or the, the question and i don't know if you've got any specific analogies or not heidi but i'm not expecting you to have is that thing of when when you first started and you realized you were working for a, a shop you just said you know you you made you didn't just give the shop one option how many options did you give them and, and what made you think like that well i think when it comes to what they were asking for they were they were pretty used to doing product development themselves so they were pretty specific about what they were looking for and they had already seen something that like was in my instagram that they were like okay this and this color. So I didn't really have to do too much that first iteration. But when they came back to me like six months later, when all of those pieces were selling out so quickly, they were like, okay, we want to expand on this idea. 
and we want something maybe a little bit more masculine. What kind of glazes do you have? Can you share with us? Do you have any ideas? They had already had a graphic that they were using. Um, it re- resembles the Three Rivers of Pittsburgh. Okay. And so we, we kind of talked through what their expectation was. So already from the initial ask, I already have in my head, okay, it needs to be masculine. What type of mug is masculine? Oh, Mm. a beer sign or a tankard or something like that, something larger in volume. So I also considered the shape and what size handle it should be, right? So men typically have a larger hand than women do. So I wanted it to be a bit taller. I wanted it to have a larger handle. I wanted it to be within like masculine hues. And they already gave me the artwork for what they wanted as a medallion or a badge on the front. So I had already been experimenting with like, I don't know, a hundred different glaze colors. I I use mostly commercial glazes. I don't mix my own. I, I don't. I don't need to do that. You know, there's <laughs> there's time, other people that that's their thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I maybe eventually I'll do it, but um, I buy all of my glazes in powder form and then you just add water to it. Yeah. And with the Three Rivers mug, we immediately knew that we didn't want to do anything blue because yeah. it's not really a Pittsburgh themed mm. color. Mm. Um, but I had this this glaze that when fired, it looks like rust. Oh, cool. And yeah. we really like the idea of like the bridges and um, it being the rust belt and yeah. um, it's steel industry. So that's, that's when we made the decision to go with that color, but it definitely was not like, I don't rely on myself. Like <laughs> I do a lot of like talking to friends and talking to family and talking to the customer about like what their yeah. vision is so that, you know, I'm not spinning my wheels, you know, spend a month developing something they don't like. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. So that's, we've got two different angles there. We've got you as, not you specifically, but each of us individually as if we were creating our own USP for whether it be a single product, a range of products or everything we want to make, or you've got, what is it the customer wants? What is the thing that they want it to be unique about? And all they're actually utilizing is your skills to create a thing. You're putting your spin on it, but, and you know, you're suggesting the color because of what you've already played with. Yeah. Because they say, we want a masculine mug, right? Bang, that, that's got rid of like 50%, let's just say of, of what you can make um, regarding size. Yeah. Exactly as you've said, you know, hand size. So it, that, that will determine the shape of a handle, the strength of a handle, the, the size of it and everything else. So that's really interesting. Whereas I think if you, like with you, Raz, like if you were to sit there with a pad of paper and go, right, well, I'm a blacksmith. Mm. This is what I make. What's my range going to be that's going to be different from everyone else? I, I can't imagine that you would have gone, oh, well, roses. Yeah. You know, that's that's wouldn't have been a natural progression. That's come about from your market research, from physically going to several events and trying to work out how to bring more people to your stand. And if I'm also point out, like, I laugh when you say, oh, you feel foolish because you jumped in and made too many pro- different products by having 10 of them. I might have showed up with 20 to my first market. Yeah. And that's also at the fact of me just having no clue what I was doing when I started out 10 years ago. And also, like, here's a vast range of things I learned to make when in school. Let me just keep practicing that. Yeah. And then adding on to that later on. And then in addition, having just ideas of things like, oh, this would be fun. This could be cool. And I made a lot of shit things for a really long time. (laughs) 
before I realized that, oh, this didn't sell, I'll stop making that. And then come back to it in three years' time and realize that, oh, but if I just do the design completely differently, maybe that'd work. Yeah. Okay. Heidi, you got a point on that? Yeah. Um, so I guess I cut my teeth on everyone else's ideas. And that was really great to build my business and really harness that like batch work. But after that, it was, okay, well, if I want to do markets, I can't just sell what I'm selling to these individual companies. I need to like have something that... I make myself that like really gets me excited. And I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say that my dad gave me the idea um, <laughs> because he's like, you need Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> but that turned into a really cool item for you. It did. And to be honest, like I, I thought it would be kind of kitschy. So I wasn't too keen on it. Like you, Dan, I wanted to have my brand a bit more elevated. Um, and, and then I was like, you know what? I am fun. I, you know, I grew up this way. These, this is my heritage. Like these are things that like my family cares about. Why am I rejecting that for like some idea that I'm going to be suddenly in Vogue magazine or something? Like, (laughs) no, let's, let's bring it, (laughs) let's bring it down to like what, what people around me are actually interested in versus like my, overall vision. And when I did that, I ended up like blossoming so much with like all of these ideas and got really excited. And I was able to take something that like, for the most part is more like folklore and kind of, you know, that whole like bumper sticker thing and turned it into something that's a little higher end um, that people maybe that have camps um, want to have as like dinnerware or um, drinkware yeah. and that kind of thing. So, I, although the initial idea wasn't was kind of hokey, um, mm. I was able to bring it up to to um, I guess the level that I wanted my brand to be. So, there's two really cool things from that. The first one is absolutely understand what you mean about no no i i only make high-end things i couldn't possibly make that (laughs) even when you're looking at it and you know it will sell it will generate you turnover it will do really well but you're like oh yeah but that's that's a gimmicky that's kitschy that's you know all those words but you did eventually go hey hang on a minute yes it will sell but just because it will sell because it's linked to that doesn't mean i have to make my thing look trashy or like cheap or whatever you can do it in such a way and i mean i would never say looking at your your bigfoot mug that that is like oh well that's just a you know that's a ten dollar item in a in a whatever that's a hey look this is fun i went to this thing maybe i'm a bit older i've got a bit more surplus cash i don't want the bumper sticker i don't want the like bookmark or or whatever else it is they do the bigfoot slippers or something i don't know but i'll take the mug for the visiting of that area and I can and that's quite cool that's quite a thing uh, the other one is if you haven't already read the book steal like an artist by Austin Cleon uh, that's a u s t i n k l e o n I can highly recommend that it's a really quick read it's a really good little book and uh, I can even better than that I can strongly recommend you don't buy it brand new on Amazon you can find them really cheaply secondhand all over the place But he's got some fantastic points in there about there is no such thing as the original concept. Do not sit there beating yourself up thinking like, oh, but I I can't use that. It's it's all inspiration. Everyone's taken bits from other places. It's, you know, it's how creativity works. 
the stream of consciousness. There's all those conversations you can look up. Um, but I can highly recommend that book to to anyone listening who's kind of feeling a little bit, oh, I'm not sure if I can do this or I can do that. Take inspiration from where you can get it. Absolutely do that. Yeah, it definitely was one of those things that like, not only did it create a line of product for me to have that was more like, I don't want to say masculine because there are some women that buy it too, but it, yeah. there, so much of pottery is like sold to your granny or your, your auntie and not so much to like just run of the mill, like dudes that drink coffee in the morning. Right. And yeah. um, it's a, it's a great gift. So like, I think breaking, breaking that stereotype with my booth too helps uh, bring mm. people in. So I, I ordered a giant banner and, and that's like one of the products that's on there. And, um, it just, it brings the attention of an audience that normally probably wouldn't come to my booth too. Yeah. So it was, it's given set tenfold. Well, that's good. So you've not even just put it subtly on there. And if it sells, it sells, you've lent heavily into it and you've gone, Hey, if I'm doing this, let, let's do it. Let's really sell it. That's fantastic. I think that's, that's tied in nicely with a couple of our, our next points. One of them being is, you know, who is your audience? Because the first few times you put out the stand, you put out the table and you could have spent a lot of money on a gazebo and a set of tables and banners and all this kind of stuff. But if you don't know who your audience is and you're set up at the wrong market or you've, you've not pitched it the right way, getting people to come to your stand can be really tricky. Yeah. I do know a guy, in fact, we, we all know a bunch of three guys who are um, blacksmiths who have just sort of started getting going with their own place, Thornwood Forge. Shout out those guys. They did a um, a festival recently, which was all about bushcrafting and, and wild, it's called Wilderness or the Wild in Us Festival. Nice little play on words there. But one of the things they did was have owl cooking yeah. using the coals and stuff, but they didn't have a license to sell the food. So they were giving away free food samples that had been cooked at the forge. Mm. So you've now got a draw. And one of the other things which I found fascinating was, Raz, if you were setting up a blacksmith brand, what color would your T-shirt be? I mean, most likely black. Okay. Do you know what color their T-shirts are? I do. Their T-shirts are bright in your face orange. Yep. Okay, like I don't know whether Joe deliberately thought this through or whatever, but it is one of those things of everyone's going, what's going on over there? Because there's this like fluorescent beacon of three guys and there's flames and there's food Mm. and you've just got this trifecta of reasons to go and visit over here what's happening. Obviously, you can't always do that if you're in the middle of a town centre and you can't have, you know, you don't want to have a kiln running or flames going or anything like that. But if you can do stuff that isn't gimmicky, that ties in with your brand to bring people along, it really does help. But obviously that makes a difference if you've got other people to help you there. One of the things I'm currently researching to do for when I go to markets is I'm trying to work a way of building a light enough weight portable uh, treadle lathe. So foot powered lathe. Oh. oh, nice. Yeah. So that I can have that on one side because I'm getting a lot of people saying, did you make this? Mm. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm stood here selling this product, but I've not made it obvious to everyone that I have created these things in front of me on the table. So I'm currently um, looking at putting any reels, any footage and that, sticking it all together in one long video to put on a little tablet and have that playing of pictures of me doing stuff. 
big banner of me stood at the lathe with things coming off just to really try and make it obvious to everyone no i am the person who has created these pieces they've not been imported i've not bought them from somewhere else the other thing to point out and to bring up now then it is is pricing so we're not going to talk about how to cost but something i didn't do on my first one i had I only actually had three items out on my table to begin with, or three different products out on the table. All of them were basically the same price. So I had two of them at about £45, and then I had one of them at £65. Mm. That, that was my price range, was £45 to £65. That's asking a lot from your very first market when you're sat up on a plastic table with like a cheap tablecloth on it and a borrowed gazebo and that's it you've clearly you're clearly just starting out you clearly haven't got the budget to like put up a big banner and do anything fancy i didn't even i didn't even have anything and like pot plants or anything like that but something that i really wish i'd realized before i got going was try to have a range of priced products yes and raz i know you've got a wide range as you've already mentioned a few times today yes uh, <laughs> uh, but and that that's like it wasn't a very conscious decision for me to have like everything from knickknacks to really expensive things that was literally hearing the stories of why do restaurants have really expensive wines on their menu and it's just to make all the other things look cheap and if some idiot falls for it and want to spend a lot of money and impress someone they can do that okay so that's why also like i i sell key rings key fobs like paw prints stamped on copper for eight ten quid and then i sell like uh i brought a custom sword i made uh for a wedding that was specifically from Zelda Twilight Princess, and it's the master sword that they used to carve the cake in that wedding. I brought that along, and I put a price tag on that and say, this is sold, but here's what I can do. Here's just a range of things. Yeah. And all the other things in between, like having the roses and having uh, knife blades and all of those things, and sort of fill out the price range of, if you come and just like the story I'm selling of me doing blacksmithing in a modern society, and just want to support me, you can find something to spend your money on. If you want to give that to someone else, uh, like if you have a gift budget, there's something in that range as well. Yeah. So that no, that's that's a really good point. You're talking about a variety of different people, those who might just be the casual buyer. They'll give you a, a couple of quid for, for something. And then you've got the people who seriously take the time to look at things. You must do the same as well, Heidi. I mean, having looked at your setup a few times, I know you've said in the past there's people who have picked stuff up who haven't realized quite how expensive it is. Yeah, so I have a range of $5 US dollars to $250. Um, I don't tend to take too many of the $250 items, mainly <laughs> because they're a little bit more precious and fragile and it's really hard to cart around. Um, but secondarily... If someone is looking for that price point item, they're probably going to ask for something custom. Maybe they they get an idea from the glazes that I have on on uh, other items, and then they're asking for it. I have sold a few of the the higher end items just like super randomly. I'm like, wait, what? You really want that? Yeah. Okay, great, thank you. I, I have the same experience, but it's, it's one of those things where like uh, I I would almost recommend people when they go to the first markets to have some of those things that looks a lot nicer but might sort of quote unquote have the same cost of producing as the regular items but just price it more mm -hmm. just to fill out that range because like yeah if just someone happens to want it you make extra money on it yeah i also up price things that i'm not ready to let go of 
Um, yes, yes, as well. As <laughs> so well. like, you know, I might make this like more sculptural piece that I'm, I'm like, oh, I love it so much. I want it to live with me a little bit longer. I'm just going to price it up. And then maybe like when someone <laughs> does buy it, it's like, makes me feel a little bit better that they, they actually wanted it, you know? And it wasn't just like, oh yeah, this is just going to go on a shelf and nobody's ever care about it. Like they're willing to pay that hard earned dollar. But I also like a lot of the shows that I do are super kid friendly. Yeah. So I like to have things that like kids can touch and, and, and pick up and, um, might want. So a lot of times they're like either like tiny little necklaces Carver helped me with or, um, little, little tiny pinch pot bowls or magnets. Mm. Um, and those go really well and they fill out the, the negative space on my table. And, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things that initially, I was just using those as glaze tests. Yeah. So they weren't really anything that I was too precious about. So sometimes I give them away. You know, if there's if there's a mom and she's like really interested in the pieces or a dad that's really interested in the pieces and they have little ones with them and the little ones are like touching things and the parents are getting nervous, you know, oh gosh, mm. oh my goodness. And I just hand them, yeah. you know, I hand them one of those pieces and I'm like, you can have this. And then they're occupied with that little thing. Yeah. So the parents like feel a little bit more at ease to shop and and not so worried that like, I'm going to freak out if a piece gets broken. Like I'm, I'm not that precious about my yeah. work. I mean, things break is not really my issue. Uh, <laughs> it's more like breaking tables and the floor or something that, that could happen at my end. Or cutting themselves. Yes, but that's why I sell band-aids for 50 quid each. <laughs> so interestingly enough, I um, th this is something I need to break away from. As I already mentioned, is that whole thing of, oh, I'm not making that. It doesn't, you know, my brand's too high end for that. So one of the things I've had a few people suggest to me who are the wood turners that used to work for them was fridge magnets mm. and they literally much the same as you were talking about Heidi was that whole thing of hey just turn a disc of exotic wood some like really nice stuff it's got a bit of figure into it just turn it down pair it off glue in a rare earth magnet to the back of it it's like two pounds something like that and now in the back of my head I'm like but that's not kitchen or tableware theoretically it goes on a fridge it holds you know it, it's in the kitchen but i mean it feels like you're shoehorning it into that kind of range but equally you know you you can make them cost effectively you can kind of like and again it's that really cheap thing so i'm still something that i'm wrestling with on that one if, if i may contest you there a little bit certainly do you have anything that bring that you bring along that just screams fun no nothing's fun we, so we, we, don't, we don't do fun and, here. What are you talking oh, about? Okay, this is sorry. a very serious endeavor. <laughs> fun. Just just me then, just me. What are you talking about? There's no color. There's no fun. It's all just... No, I, I genuinely, I don't. It's all... Um, because like a uh, silly example in my end is like, I yeah, I make bottle openers. Mm -hmm. And I often enough, I don't make bottle openers. I teach bottle openers and I demonstrate making bottle openers and I have leftovers from that and I sell those yeah. when they look nice enough or I give them away. Yeah. But one thing I do make is the dragon tail bottle openers. Absolutely unnecessary. I they, I tend to make them as big as I can, usually weighing like 500 grams to kilo and a half, just because they are supposed to be unnecessarily big. Yeah. But they are fun. They look really cool. Yeah. And the likelihood is the person who's going to buy them is going to be the size of a Viking, so it won't be a problem to them being that size anyway. Yeah. There's that as well. Uh 
so I'm not saying fridge magnets will be your fun item to bring along, but Heidi has her Sasquatch or the Bigfoot thing. Yeah. And you can, I guess, in some instances, be at risk of looking too stuck up and oh, too absolutely. serious at a market. Absolutely. It is a problem that I'm I'm trying to work out how to maintain one thing, but kind of lean to make it open to more people, if that makes sense at all, which it probably yes. doesn't. The problem I'm having with is literally that thing of everything that I make, I want to be able to be functional and used every day. Mm. I, I don't make art. I'm, I'm very specific about that. People might look at my thing and say, this is a work of art because it's something that they don't necessarily currently have the skill set to make, but I know I can teach them to do that. You know, but I don't make a thing that is to be just sat on a shelf and looked at. If people choose to do that with the items I make, that's fine. That's up to them. Once it's left me, I'm that. that's good. But at the same time, it could be used. Mm. I've specifically used a finish on it that is food safe. I've specifically thought about what is the capacity of this you know i've not done uh there's a trend at the moment for making bowls that have got like a two or three inch round rim on the outside and then there's like this tiny dish in the middle but the idea of the two or three inch rim around the outside is so that you've got this really big canvas to put color or texture or carving and stuff on right that's that's not what i do Um, i could do it but it wouldn't really fit in with the rest of the ranges as i'm currently making them So I am, you know, I am still wrestling with that at the moment because the really obvious one would be to take some sycamore or beach bowls and then colour the outside of them so that they've got a really rich colour that they're quite fun and and kind of draw people into the stand. So maybe you could have like a a vibrant teal kind of colour. Yeah. Or or like a, you know, a rich red colour and you could put a lacquer over the top so it, but that you're then getting into the realms of almost mimicking ceramics which is yeah. so you know there's, there's lots of levels that which isn't a problem i don't i don't have a problem with any of that but it's you know what could be i'm trying to reduce the the price down a bowl to make it affordable to make it the 20 pound bowl and then you suddenly start pushing the price back up again because you've now adding a layer of color it's taking more time you've got to put a lack you know so it's there's a lot of factors in there and at that point, we might start approaching the topic of having a loss lead, which is absolutely maybe a bit for a later episode. Well, yeah, probably, but yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder though too. Is it um, is it your approach to market? Like, is your end goal to sell to restaurateurs? Is your yes. end goal to um, sell an entire um, spread to? an affluent family that really, you know, digs your stuff or is your end goal to just consistently do markets? To me, your brand speaks more to that like elevated price point, those those bigger clients that are looking for, you know, an entire series of pieces for their restaurant or, or their home. And at that point, like maybe some of the suggestions that we have aren't necessarily like what would grow that part of your business. Because yeah, it does kind of water down your brand a little bit to yeah. mimic some of the things, some of the tricks that Ras and I yeah. are doing to get people into the booth. It's oh, it's a very tricky thing, and absolutely, Heidi. Yeah, I mean, the ideal for me would be I've I've had a few chefs look at my stuff and go, "Ooh, you know, could you make?" But I've not had any of them look at my stuff and go, "Can you give me twenty of those?" They've all looked at what I've done, respected the craft level, and then asked if I can make them something completely different, which is absolutely fine. And then that actually ties in nicely with our kind of next 
point of this, this conversation today, which is understand where you want to go. Yeah. You know, do you just want to rock up at a few local craft fairs and make enough money that it sustains you? You're not having to travel too far. You're not having to stress about making a huge batch of stuff for a big client or wholesaling to anywhere. Or do you want to use the markets literally as they originally, you know, marketing is called marketing for a reason. You know, you're, you're testing products, you're testing new things. And hey, if you happen to sell stuff that covers the cost of your pitch fee and maybe a bit of your time, that's great. Um, but you're actually using this as a who buys this thing? Why do they buy it? And what do they use it for? Therefore, do I make it better? Do I Can I save money somewhere because actually I'm making out of a higher-end product that isn't required for what they're using it for? Or, you know, material, not product, sorry. You know, all those kind of things. And so those sort of pillars of your business, are you looking at commissions? Are you looking at wholesale? Or are you just looking at direct sales? Do you just want to stay there in your lane, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. And that's where you get to play around with literally going, hey, do you know what? This week I fancied making 50 of this product that are all the same thing, and I've worked out my price point, and this is what they'll sell at. And they won't go off because it's not a food-related product necessarily, so I can just sit there and know that that's what I'm comfortable selling these at. And they can sit there for three months or six months, or maybe if they're really popular, I'll make another load Mm. another week. There's also something to be said for... Uh, if you already have something that is selling well and it doesn't sell at the market, then also like that's fine. Then you sit on them for another mm. couple of weeks or a month and they sell at the next one or online. Having social media, you can also say like, I have these left over from this market. Do anyone fancy them and push things that way? Yeah. Uh, but w- were you about to go into yeah. how to know if a market is for you? Uh, well, because my mind went there and I went... Sh- not necessarily, but that that is that is that is exactly where we need to lead to. So, if you've got a specific example of that, Rasmus, lead the way. Yeah, um, not. I mean, I I've done a lot of markets over the years now, and I've boiled down to a few really good ones a year. I think I have three really good ones a year, and then another three that is okay and or more fun. And I'm also about to try out a few one, a few new ones. But it has taken me a couple of years to realize that, no, no, these are the markets I know will be good that I can go back to and make steady money on. Here's a couple that if I have the headspace for it, if I have the surplus of stocks, I can go there. I won't make as much, but I will make some. But it's taken years to get there. Um, So my mom, over the last couple of years, I started setting up her own business, selling plant-dyed yarn that... and. Uh, he also weaves her own fabrics and is making national costume our national costume here in Norway to Bunad. So very traditional stuff. But she hates going to markets. She has not been able to make <laughs> any of them work for her. But that's how she leads on it. And then talk, I asked her a few more questions. Like, yeah, but that market early on once didn't like it. She did that market early on, didn't like it. Then she tried this market and it went all right, but she didn't like it. I was like, then you don't like markets. <laughs> yeah. Because it can take years, not only to build up the credibility of the people that frequent this market and has been going to this market for years to actually have that trust in your customer that, oh, now we have seen you a couple of whiles. Now we want to spend your money with you. Now we trust you. They might not be able to verbalize it that way, but that's often how it comes across or how, how it might be internalized, uh, subconsciously so anyway. And... 
then also there's the fact of you need to learn to go to markets. You need to learn how to deal with customers and get people over how to smile at them without being creepy, how to interact with them and chit chat about the same questions for a thousand times over yeah. the course of a weekend and not want to strangle anyone. Yeah. Ask me how I know. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's also that thing as well, though, isn't it, of being able to read people and realize where they're just chatting. And yeah. if there's someone who comes along behind who looks like they're interested, you need to be able to politely end the conversation, which is a skill that can be learned. Yeah. And, and also just like having that, even if you're meeting a conversation, even if you like that conversation, just being able to say, if you need anything, let me know. And yeah. just be able, I mean, that's that's a very ADHD, I know, but being able to sort of keep track of two conversations at the same time. It's a really useful skill when you are at markets and you have one really fascinating conversation, but also a customer that wants something and not f make yeah. them feel ignored. No, absolutely. I think the, the thing to realize with all this as well, though, if we lean back to the, the assignment from last week is what fits your time availability. You've got your timetable, you've worked out what you can do. Um, so, you know, do you have the time to make all of the things or do you have the time to make some of the things and do a better prep for your market stall um, and work out which markets are good ones to go to. Um, and similarly, as we, we said before, with the whole kind of getting people to look at your product and uh, give you good feedback, ask, go to some of the markets you're tempted to go to and chat to the stall holders. They will all be happy to talk to you. And, and if you just say to them, don't be blunt and go, hi, how are you? How much did you pay for your pitch? That's not a good lead in, <laughs> you know. But just you can you can ask some questions and you can find like you know how many times have you been here is this a good regular market for you what's the kind of thing and you don't have to ask people who are doing stuff similar to you that's that's not necessarily the best thing you know you want to ask a number of people from a number of different things that they're doing uh, although top tip anyone selling food will always have a good market so it's kind of pointless asking them although it is always worth investigating what food they sell because if you're going to stand yes. there all day then you want to know where the good stuff is and get there early. Yes. Um, ask me how I know. Uh, <laughs> we are of a like mind on that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. We're, we're coming close towards the end of time. And I think we've we've covered most of our, our basic points. And I hope people have found that particularly helpful. Feel free to always message us and ask for further information or we can we will cover things in, in future episodes as well. I'm trying to remember what the assignment was for this week, but I think what we can always say is that uh we, we have we have a small checklist of things to consider, things to look out for, what you should ask yourself and do before you show up to your forge market and figure out sort of what is it that you will be doing at these markets and i mean markets is just as par part of yeah. this yeah but sort of how to figure out what is your unique selling point what is not only going to separate you from all the other people in your craft but separate you in a room full of different craftspeople. absolutely so again as this will be a downloadable thing and if you're antiquated like me you can print it out <laughs> and this will, this will be available from our um, settingupshop.com website free of charge there is no no cost to download these things these are all meant to help you guys out as much as possible so with, with that in mind i would also suggest that not only look at that and start working through the list but also have a look at local markets work out what they are 
um, the different types of market they are and all of that kind of thing. But before we go then, uh, Rasmus and Heidi, Heidi, we'll start with you. What one thing have you done this week or in the last period of time we've since we've spoke to move closer towards your business goal? I'm sure there's been many. Yeah, I've got quite a few. Um, I, I would say the, the biggest milestone for me um, in the in the last week or so is I I delivered a pretty large order to Mini Cooper USA, nice, um, which was really super exciting. I've been working with them for the last couple of months to develop some pieces for them, and they had a big event in Pittsburgh called the Vintage Grand Prix, uh, where they show off their cars uh, from the lot. They also uh, invite other people to come in and drive their Mini Coopers in the parade, and um, it's just a it's a really great event runs from like one weekend to the next weekend. So I made probably in in the span of the last two months, uh, about 90 pieces for them. Okay. Um, which is a pretty large request uh, yeah. for me. Normally my requests are like 15 to 30 pieces. So um, I delivered in two, two batches and each piece was absolutely unique, which was super fun for me, uh, but also a little stressful, right? Because I'm so used <laughs> yeah. to batching the same thing yeah. over and over and over again. Um, but I got to um, I got to play, which is really fun. I got to play with manipulating files to make new types of stamps, so I could do a checkered pattern all the way around the mug for the finish line um, look that Mini yeah. Cooper does. Uh, they gave me access to all of their graphics to be able to make stamps of um, their logo. And I illustrated some vehicles, which was, you know, it's just like hitting all the points of like really being excited about what I yeah. do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're getting the endorphins for yourself as well as for the customer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what we're doing this for, yeah. right? We're not just here to like make money. We're Absolutely. we're here to like check all the boxes for ourselves. Yeah. Um. So that was that was a huge highlight, and it it definitely gave me a vision for like what I can do in the future if I partnered with like Jeep or someone else that has a really passionate uh, fan base, Land Rover or those kind of folks, and. Um, you know, it was, it was just one of those things like, oh, this is an avenue I didn't think about before. And all it took was me going to get my vehicle serviced <laughs> and handing them a business card. And they're like, hmm, tell us about this that you're doing, pottery. Hmm. That's quite nice. Cool. So it is old school, a, a business yeah. card, um, but it is a conversation Absolutely. starter. And it still works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Rasmus, what's yours? Other than the shop move again. Well, still, uh, <laughs> I have packaged down, I think, nearly four metric tons of tools and materials on pallets. Oh, so that's about quarter, quarter of your shop? Just about, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, um, the big thing I'm kind of proud about now is I've actually got in conversation and been invited to attend a business-to-business market Ooh. in I th- over New Year's. I'm not sure if it was end of January or February, but thereabout. Hopefully. Yeah. So that will be a new for me, trying to actually do what sort of what Heidi's been doing and getting things into shops. That sounds cool. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, and what's mine, you ask? Well, mine will be... Yes, uh, I do ask. <laughs> that's right. Homage to some of our friends. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be rude and have two, because uh, I'll forget one of them before the next time. Uh, one is I have moved some stuff around in my workshop and today finished putting up a really a tool wall behind my lathe. So yes. everything now is all in one space rather than kind of scattered around on various different spaces. 
Um, but the second one is I have signed up to my first three-day market, uh, which is going to be at the end of September, um, which means that I really shouldn't be worrying about tools and I should be starting to make stock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all fine. That will be, all be good. It's, uh, it's actually going to be in the town of Bath. Oh. And it's during what they call the Great Bath Feast, where they shut down one of the main roads and they have loads of high-end chefs and foodie people come along specifically to this event. And I'm one of only 10 stalls that are not specifically food-related. Oh, that sounds good. So I thought this this should be a good opportunity. So I'm booked some time off the day job. Uh, I only get a two-meter space, mm. and it is just basically a table, and it's 100 quid a day. So this is my most expensive and longest one that I've done. But that's fine. Uh, it will be a really good learning curve. Yeah. I've just got to make enough stock to make sure that I don't get embarrassed. And because, you know, obviously I'm going to sell out before halfway through the second day. That's, that's the plan. So it's got to make sure that the table looks good. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a, mo- a step forward, that kind of thing of, you know, trying to cross both boundaries of, of delivering at a good good market, but also reaching out to those people that I really want to be wholesaling to as well. So um, that's, that's the one for me. Well, we hope uh, everyone enjoyed listening to this it was quite heavy with my talking this week so i'll have to rein that back in for the next one um no you're fine yeah well maybe uh hey if they've reached this far on the episodes and they don't like the sound of my voice then they're going to be in for a treat for the next few months <laughs> <laughs> so if you wanted to find us all uh, you can reach us through uh setting which has got links to all of our social medias on there but if you are like me and too lazy to go from listening to something to then clicking on something you can find me at bevelwood uk on instagram so b-e-v-e-l-w-o-o-d-u-k on Instagram and also on Facebook. Um, and you can reach me through Messenger on there. Again, as we said last week, if you ever make something and you want some honest critique, uh, that will with both positive and minus, you can reach all of us on our individual places. Absolutely. Um, Heidi, where can people find you, please? You can find me at Whitehall underscore Pottery on Instagram, Whitehall Pottery everywhere else. Uh, and Heidi Jacobs artist, I think, is is another way that you can find me. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've been around a while, guys. <laughs> In strictly the creative sense. Rasmus, <laughs> and where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Rasmus Lewin on any of the mostly social places. And if you are able to use Google Translate, you can find also me at lewinsmeer.no. And as I say every time, so it's R-A-S-M-U-S and Lowen is L-O-E-N, just in case you didn't catch it from his uh, his accent. Okay, everyone. Well, thank you. Accent? What accent? What accent? Well, you don't have an accent in your country. No, I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone, thank you very much for listening and uh, we'll hopefully see you again soon, as it were. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Mm-hmm.